Hello everyone, welcome to Dropping Your Armor where we listen to stories from thinkers, doers and dreamers in the hope of unlocking our infinite human potential. My name is Neha and I'm the host of this podcast, but do not get too attached to this voice because this particular episode will be hosted by Dr. Joachim Stemfle, who also goes by Joe. He is a psychologist by training and the founder of A-Train, and you might remember him from the Spotlight episode on transformations. Joe is doing the honor of speaking with Dr. Paul Gilbert, who's an internationally recognized clinical psychologist, researcher, best-selling author, speaker, and the foundation of compassion-focused therapy. While researching evolutionary approaches to psychopathology for over 40 years, with a particular focus on shame and the treatment of shame-based difficulties, Paul created the Compassionate Mind Foundation as an international charity with the mission to promote well-being through the scientific understanding and application of compassion. He has written and edited 23 books and over 300 papers, and his most recent book, which is called Compassion, Clinical Practice and Applications, is a landmark publication that offers extensive insight into the science behind compassion-focused therapy. You can find the links to his work in this episode description. In this conversation, Paul shares how his early training and experiences helped him appreciate the importance of compassion and explains how compassion-focused therapy is linked both to scientific realities and spiritual philosophies. Joe and Paul also discuss how compassion is not just a therapeutic tool, but something that is essential to thriving schools and workplaces. Paul's warmth is seriously infectious, and we hope this provides you with some positive, uplifting emotional textures to take away. Hello, Paul, and welcome to our podcast. Uh, It's a great honor and pleasure to have you here on Dropping Your Armor. And how are you today? Yes, thank you, Joe. Thank you very much for inviting me because, uh, you know, we've done a couple of things in the past. I'm looking forward to this. No, I'm good. I'm I'm good. The summer's coming. That's always a a nice thing. The weather always brings out the best in us. So, no, I'm I'm good. Good. And I can see the guitars in the back of your room. Are you still playing or are you more a collector these days? Uh, (laughs) Yes, I do. I do play a little bit. I play a little bit. I um, But not... Not as much as I should, really, because my fingers tend to go soft. But I try and play, try and play a couple of times a week. <laughs> Good. I'm trying to teach my daughter on and off. Uh, so let's see how that goes. But yeah, YouTube, YouTube's are just brilliant. Yes, for learning guitar, some wonderful teachers on there. You'd all free. They just all. I mean, it's that's real conversion. Is it just show you for free? Absolutely. And, and look, um, this is an amazing opportunity for the audience to learn about your groundbreaking work on compassion, which has influenced many different realms, starting in psychotherapy, but obviously many different domains. And um, before we get into it, I'd be very curious to learn a little bit more about your, your story. You know, how did you get to be who you are today and why did you get into this, this line of work? Into com- uh, well, it, a couple of things, really, I suppose. Um... Lots of reasons. Uh, I grew up in Nigeria, actually, and then I came to English boarding school, and that was a bit tough. Um, and my first degree was in economics, but I always wanted to really study human psychology. I thought about doing developmental economics, but I wanted to study psychology. So I, I did what is called a changeover degree. And during that time, I to earn some money, I also worked in a psychiatric hospital. This was in 1974 to 75. And became very interested in uh, various aspects of mental health, particularly depression. We used to have a lot of depressed people on the ward, obviously. And then I did a PhD in Edinburgh on a specialist depression unit where we would take 
people from all over the country, all over Scotland, the really difficult and uh, tragic depressions that, that hadn't really responded to treatment. So I spent a lot of time talking to depressed people. And um, one of the things that was pretty clear was that they were often pretty harsh on themselves and uh, very highly self-critical. And my first engagement in therapy was uh, cognitive therapy. Um, and in cognitive therapy, you help people think about the kinds of thoughts that they have and the way in which your feelings and your thoughts are, are kind of linked together. So when you're anxious, you have anxious thoughts, anxious thoughts make you more anxious. When you're depressed, you have, you know, depressing thoughts about yourself, you know, good, the future is hopeless and the world is not a very nice place. So negative view of the self, the world and the future. And what you do is you help people stand back and um, say, okay, well, look, you know, how would I talk to a friend? You know, I think I'm useless and so forth, but how would I talk to a friend? And how would I think about this if I wasn't depressed and, and so on? So they take a more balanced view rather than being locked into a depressed view. And that works quite well for some people, but um, some of the more chronic depressions, it didn't really work. And we were working with this uh, lady who'd had a number of suicide attempts and so on, and she'd been adopted and had this real feeling that she shouldn't have been born. She wasn't really wanted, didn't really fit in anywhere. She was basically unlovable. Um, although she had a good relationship with her husband and some lovely children and had friends and had had a job, she'd fallen out of the job because she got depressed and she actually had a bipolar depression which made it a little bit more tricky but anyhow <clears throat> so the story is that we invited her to look at some of the thoughts that were linked to her depression such as being unlovable and shouldn't have been born those sorts of things that real sense of disconnection from other people and uh, she she could stand back from that and uh, so we'll actually know I, my husband does care about me. I know that because he does this and that. My children care about me because, you know, they um, the, some of the things they do. She said, yes, I do know this logically, but it doesn't really impact on me that much. And so I asked her, I said, well, how, how do you actually hear those thoughts in your mind? You know, when you're trying to stand back and have more of a coping way of looking at a more balanced way of looking at how do you hear the thoughts in the mind? And she, she was a bit embarrassed she said, well, as I actually hear them. And I said, yes. And so she said, okay, you're doing cognitive therapy, aren't you? You got a husband who loves you. You got three fantastic children. You have a job. <laughs> Look at the evidence. So I became aware that actually a lot of the, a lot of the depressive aspects were not being carried in content, but were be carrying, being carried in the hostility. Not only that, but when people thought of themselves as failures or useless, it wasn't just, oh, I'm a failure, I'm useless, I'm no good. It was, you're a failure, you're useless. It was that intense anger in the thought. So there was anger in the intensity to try to help yourself. But when you were being self-criticism critical, there was a real rage in it too. So the obvious solution really was simply to change the emotional texture of the thinking. So create the same thoughts but this time imagine a part of you that's really compassionate to you understands your suffering and has a real desire to help you and create a kind voice and so on and this lady bless her heart said no i'm not doing that <laughs> i'm not doing that so that was our second shot the first shot was really the intensity of the hostility when people were trying to help themselves uh, come on pay attention look at the evidence uh, the second one was people didn't want to do the compassion they thought it was a weakness and no good at all. And the third shock was that when we started to do it, 
we opened up a caring system and that released a whole lot of trauma. Now, explain to your listeners, the way this works is because all of our motivational systems carry memories. For example, supposing you like holidays, you love holidays and you look forward to them. So you've got a going, exploring, going away kind of motivation to do that. Some people are very explorative, aren't they, more than others. Uh, but supposing one day that you get badly beaten up and put in hospital, um, so it's quite traumatic. So the following year when you see adverts for holidays, you probably won't remember all the nice ones. All that trauma will come back. Okay, it's the same with sexuality. You enjoy sex great and so on. But if something horrible happens to you, let you get raped, then when you have sexual feelings again, it, the trauma will hit you. But it's the same with the caring system. If you've got trauma in your caring system so that you've been abused or whatever it is, when you start to focus in on trying to generate compassionate feelings, instead of producing the positive side of it, you produce the trauma side of it. So therapy had to work through the all of that traumatic experience within the care system, and that meant working with grieving and rage and so on and so on. So that's how we began with it in terms of the therapy was recognizing the hostility, changing the hostility to a softer kind of voice, recognizing the resistance to doing that and working through the resistance, enabling people to grieve for the life that they wanted but didn't have, you know, the loving parent that they wanted and didn't have. That griefing is very important in this and that really resets their their systems. The systems get re the, the caring system gets reset and then they can start to be caring and supportive of themselves. So if I hear you correctly, <clears throat> You're really mentioning these traumatic emotional memories that might even jeopardize people's ability to care for themselves, where they are more hostile towards themselves. Yeah, and it's not yeah, a yeah. cognitive issue. It goes deeper. This whole system has been compromised, has been traumatized, right? And, and what yeah. you're saying is you're redirecting even the starting them to move from self-hostility towards self-care or self-compassion as a first step. And it goes deeper than the intellectual cognitive reframing. Yes, because we're changing motives, because a motivational system like a caring system has been evolving over hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, and we know that it has its own physiology. You know, it's, a, it's linked to the oxytocin hormone, it's linked to the frontal cortex, it's linked to part of your autonomic nervous system called the vagus. Whereas other motivational systems, like your sexual system or your competing system, these have different physiological, they're different physiological systems altogether, um, and so what we need to do is by triggering or stimulating the caring system, we're wanting to trigger a whole pattern of changes. We want to change brain states. We want to get that vagus going. We want to get the frontal cortex going. We want to get the way in which people pay attention, the way they think. So it's a change of state. It's a change of brain pattern. It's not just a change of thinking. And not everyone might be familiar among our listeners with, you know, the systems and the caring system, what it really does, why it evolved. Maybe can you explain a little bit more what the caring system really is, you know, in layperson's terms, why it evolved in humans? Yeah, so, yeah, it's a great question. So the point is, humans, like other animals, we have lots of different motivational systems. Okay, and, and motivational systems are designed to do certain things. So your competitive system is designed to go out and you can compete with others. If you watch animals, they'll compete over food and all that. Sexual system is obviously designed to reproduce. Um, now, the caring system 
one of the main roots of the caring system, it's only one of them, but it is the main one, came from reproduction. So a number of species like turtles and fish, um, they just produce hundreds of eggs. And then after the infants are born, that's it, they're on their own. Okay. Um, whereas mammals, when infants are born, the parent, usually the mother, but not always, but usually the mother, uh, takes responsibility for looking after them, for feeding them, for protecting them, keeping them warm, paying attention to their distress cause, not letting them wander too far away. So the parent actually, you can see this in birds as well as mammals actually, <clears throat> takes a, has this interest in the well-being of her infant and will, as I say, feed it, keep it warm, it will do lots of things for the infant to ensure not only its survival but it, that it can prosper. Now, in order for that to happen, there has to be a range of uh, physiological systems that are revolving in the brain, which allow that an animal to be sensitive, to have a, a capacity to pay attention to the needs and the distress of the infant, and also be motivated to do something about it. And that basically is what compassion is. It's a sensitivity to suffering and or need. That's the first thing. You'd be sensitive, you don't turn away from it or whatever. You try to understand it, you understand what it's about. And then the second aspect is the behavioral aspect of what you do. Now, that's called an algorithm. And an algorithm is if A do B. And your brain is full of these things, right? If A do B. If, if there's a signal of the strengths, activate this part of your brain and then be motivated to do something about it. You know, you, if you think about temperature, you know, if the temperature goes high, you're your body will start to sweat. If it goes too low, you'll start to shiver. That's an algorithm, if A, then B. Blood sugars, if your blood sugars go high, um, then you won't want to eat. <laughs> you might get a bit dizzy. If they go too low, then you will get very hungry. So um, these algorithms, if A, do B, are very, very important. So the if A, do B algorithm for caring is linked to these physiological systems. Now, we know that because if you knock them out, if you knock out oxytocin or excuse me, part of your frontal cortex isn't working or your vagus is not very good, then caring is not so done so efficiently or sometimes not done at all. So when you, what we're doing in compassion focus therapy is we're turning on these very basic ancient systems that have big impacts on the way your brain is working, the way your body is working, the way your mind is working. And it's that switching that's, uh, that's the key aspect of... Um, how we do compassion focus therapy you switch your motive uh, it's very powerful right if i summarize what you're saying is that the unique ability of humans to care and to be cared for that's a unique human thing that evolved over time and and you're switching on through compassion focused therapy that motive right you mentioned it's the the awareness of suffering and the desire to relieve it that's essentially what compassion is and you're turning on this, yeah, this motive right. and you're creating an environment where people feel that right it links to what you mentioned earlier about self-care that's a great point that you make because i mean animals clearly care for their infants obviously they do but human compassion is slightly different because we can do it knowingly okay the concept of having a mind the human mind is about million maybe two million years old maybe less maybe more but um we have evolved a range of very complex cognitive abilities so we can think in time, we can think about tomorrow, we can think about five years from now. <clears throat> we have a complex sense of self. We can imagine our, you know, a sense of self-awareness. Um, 
we have a complex forms of empathy, we have the capacity to be mindful, and we have the capacity to do things knowingly. Now, lions, for example, clearly intend to kill their prey, but not knowingly. They don't know what they're doing. And they can't suddenly decide, you know what, all this killing of these animals is very cruel, I'm going to become a vegetarian. <laughs> or I need to train, you know, I'm just not very a good hunter these days. I need to get up in the mornings and go circuit training because there's no knowing awareness, but humans do. And this means that we can use caring with knowing awareness. We can be empathic. We can work out what's going to be happy, happy what's going to be ha helpful. That's why we can make vaccines. Vaccines is a very complicated science, but you know what you're doing and why you're doing it every step of the way. You know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And that's what makes it compassion. There's knowing awareness. Okay. It's not just automatic. It's this complex knowing awareness. Um, and the other thing about compassion is it's really about conscious suffering. So if your car or your garden is damaged and you might be sad about that, but you wouldn't have compassion for your car, you wouldn't have compassion for your garden. You might have compassion for you because you own it. We only have compassion for things that can suffer for conscious minds, minds that have a conscious awareness of suffering. Otherwise, it's just caring. You can care for your garden and so forth. But um, so that's another key element about why compassion is different from straightforward caring. I think that's very powerful. And let me maybe summarize this for our listeners that you're saying is there seems to be almost two levels, a visceral level of caring and feeling cared for. But as humans, we can be intentional about the desire to relieve suffering. So compassion can be a consciously chosen motive, right? Even something like developing a vaccine can be a compassionate act. We're doing this to help mankind deliberately to relieve suffering. And that's what makes us unique as humans. That's right. And we know that we may not know. Okay. So we didn't know how to make COVID vaccines three years ago. We didn't have a, well, let's say didn't have a clue. I'm sure we had a clue, but we didn't really know. We had to work it out. So this is a very important point that you make because compassion often requires us to acquire wisdom. So sometimes if we're struggling, we don't actually know what's going to help us. We don't know what's going on, you know, so we have to go and work it out. And some people go to therapy, some people work it out for themselves. But the awareness that wisdom is something you acquire, it's not something you're born with, that's a very important point. And you have to work at it. So what you're saying is even the conscious intention is not yet enough. You also have to have the wisdom yeah. that you're able to help, right? Uh, if you want to be compassionate, yeah. you also need the judgment That's right. first understand where the suffering comes from and then how could you how could you possibly enact it? I know that you've done also a lot of work on Buddhism and it links nicely into compassion. Would you mind sharing some of the cross-link between Buddhist philosophy and compassionate-focused psychotherapy? Yeah, it's a great point, this one, Joe, because, you know, compassion in the West has got a little bit lost in some ways. It's got very tied up with happiness and, and uh, all of that stuff, which is fine. Um, but, you know, Buddhism began, I mean, it was rooted in our ancient traditions of Jainism and yoga and all kinds of things. But the story that you, you, you probably know, but your listeners may not, is that they, there was a, <clears throat> somewhere in the foothills of Nepal, somewhere down in Nepal, um, there was a very um, wealthy and powerful lord, king, and he had a son. And uh, at his birth, Soothsayer said, oh, your son is going to be renowned through the ages. He will be revered. 
And the king would say, oh, it's great, uh, but he will die of poverty because it's not going to be your kind of kingdom. It's going to be a spiritual one based on suffering or something. And the king was outraged. No, this can't be. I need him to be like me, make conquer the, you know, conquer and suffer. So he built a series of golden palaces for his son, and he ordered that his son should never encounter aging or disease or unhappiness. Everything he wanted should be given to him. <clears throat> you know, wine, women, and song. And um, this worked for a while, but the story goes, because of course it's a parable as well as a real story, but the story goes that, but eventually he became bored with the uh, wine, women, and song, and he wanted to know what was outside the walls. Now, the hero of the story is actually a servant who he persuaded to take him out. Um, so one night, he's asked the seven, can you get me out of here? I want to, I want to see what's going on outside. I, you know, so they smuggled him out of the um, golden palace and uh, he goes down the hill and at the bottom of the hill there is this village and the first thing he encounters is someone who's very old, bent over a, a stick, struggling to walk and all lined and Siddhartha, who was the, the son, the prince, said, oh my goodness, what's this? And his attendant says, that's aging, Siddhartha. That is the fate of all living things. All living things age. And he said, even me? Yeah, even you, you will age. And then the next, he saw uh, somebody who was very sick and very ill and in pain. And Siddhartha was shocked. What's this, he said. And the, the attendant said, ah, this is sickness, Siddhartha. This is what we're all vulnerable to. And Siddhartha said, even me? Said, yes, even you. And then he saw somebody slumped in a, on the streets who was clearly dead. And he pushed him with his stick. He was dead. Siddhartha said, what has happened to this person? And the attendant said, this person is dead. What do you mean dead? He's dead. He's no longer alive. He will never be alive. He has died. And, and Siddhartha said, that's outrageous. What about me? Even you, as a prince, you will one day decay. You will have disease and you will die. And the story is that uh, Siddhartha just cried and cried. He couldn't believe the reality that he'd been hidden from all these years. And then coming down the road was a, a Sudhu dressed in the gear. You know, the, He said, who's this person coming down the road? And the attendant said, that's a Sadhu. Sudhu. He's a holy man. He's trying to seek and make sense of the suffering in the world and trying to work out what we can do about it. And Siddhartha said, then so must I and refused to go, and then he left. He never went back to the Golden Palaces again. And so the, the point of the story is that really the beginning of the Mahayanan tradition, the beginning of Buddhism, is in the inevitability of suffering of life. It's not really about seeking happiness. That comes later. It's, re, it's opening your mind to the reality of life and to the fact that we're all in the same reality. And the fact that we can hide from that reality by surrounding ourselves with the comforts of life. We live in a, we make our own golden temples and, and houses and we live there and we don't worry too much about what we're vulnerable to or what other people are vulnerable to. So off he went and he, and he did various things and all kinds of, tried all kinds of things, some of which worked, some of which nearly killed him. But then he developed this awareness that a lot of our approach to suffering is of two forms. And it's a little bit like the Greeks had also shown that there's the reality as the reality, but it's the way in which we 
engage that reality and make sense of that reality. That's key. And the second observation you made was that to some degree, um, this life is an illusion and that the real experience is consciousness, the domain of mind, the domain of consciousness and self, and all these are all creations. They come into existence. They go out of existence. But what is constant is the process of <clears throat> the ability for things to come in and go out. What's constant is this domain of that things can emerge. You know, universes can appear. Life forms can appear, you know. And so what is the process that makes that possible? And that, in the Buddhist traditions, is the nature of mind or consciousness. So it's the ground of all being. That's what it's discussed as. So another thing that when you meditate, if you meditate in a period, you begin to aware, become aware that this biological frame is um, just a short-term creation that the mind inhabits. You know, it's not real in any sense. It's a very beautiful story that you shared, and some some of our listeners might know it, but it makes it clear, right, that uh, the way you interpret it or you describe it, Buddhism is not about just feeling happy or being relieved from stress. Like some people might take meditation practices more <laughs> as a as a let's say as a stress relief thing, but it's really about opening your mind to to be aware of suffering around you and developing that intentionality, as you described earlier. Um, to do something about it, but that also might require you to free yourself a little bit from your mind, right? From the yes. the, the turmoils of your mind. Um, so, so that's a very clear way of looking at it. And I'm curious, when you go further this road, when you make that your intention, that you want to be a compassionate individual and you want to relieve suffering, what does it take? You mentioned wisdom earlier. What else does it take? Well, yeah, it's a good point you make because the, the key thing, right, is you realize then that, you know, Matthew Ricard says your mind is like water, you know, it can contain a poison or a medicine, but it's not what it contains. You know, your mind is like a light spotlight. It can shine on many things, but it's not the thing it shines on. <clears throat> and that most people without training of the nature of mind, they constantly confuse content with process. Consciousness is process, right? So your mind can be full of rage or anger or sex or hunger. Or whatever, but these are all content. These are all flavors that pass through the mind, okay? And the key thing is to recognize, stand back from them and recognize that they are textures that come and go. And these textures come and go in all human beings. All human beings are capable of love and uh, to some degree. I mean, obviously more than others and hatred and, and anxiety and so on. And that... That's all part of a field of consciousness in a way. So once you realize that, you, you realize that actually all things can suffer. And because it's all part of the same ground of consciousness, then you, you want to stop that from happening. And so that then creates the motivation, may all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. So you, that is one way in which you come into compassion through the Buddhist position of realizing the interconnected things and also realizing that how can I be happy if you're not? <laughs> you know, that there is a sense in which my happiness depends upon your happiness, because if you're unhappy, then that is that is an experience in my field of consciousness. I mean, I suppose I could deny it or whatever. So that's how that works. Now, in the, in the um, clinical position, we take a slightly different view of that. We say, well, that's, that's all true, that 
aspect that life is um, consciousness exists and all these things are just content. We got to get clear about the content. You know, it's like the snowflake, you know, the snowflake example with a snowflake coming through the clouds and then floating through the air and looking at itself and all the other snowflakes and thinks, oh, look at me, I'm amazing, I'm much bigger than these other snowflakes. And then it hits the sea <laughs> and it realized that it was much more than a snowflake all the time. But the sea can constantly generate snowflakes, <laughs> but they can always come back to source. So that's the kind of story. So in, in the biology then, we're interested in more of the biology, you know, what the fact of the matter is that when we are caring and when we feel cared for, that has a huge impact on our positive emotions. You know, we feel happier, we feel more content, we feel safer, we have more joy, we have more playfulness. When you're with people that you trust and friends that you like, um, you can have a great time. Whereas uh, if you're with people who are critical of you, who bully you, put you down, or they don't really care about you, then that's not so good. So understanding that caring both for yourself being cared for caring for others and self-care these things actually are the road to uh, physical health actually i mean obviously you can get all kinds of diseases but in general you're healthier if you're compassionate than critical and um, certainly mental health it's going to be much better for you if you're able to be compassionate to yourself and to be with compassionate others and if you're critical of yourself and you're living in hostile environments. It's a very nice antidote to what we're often taught in school, individualism, materialism, right? Take care of yourself and then, uh, you know, make sure you accumulate goods and then you'll be happy. What you're saying is actually, if you want to be happy, you need to care and be cared for and be compassionate with others. It's a interesting and powerful message and you have the research to back it up. Oh yeah, very much so. Because the, um, the problem with the, um, just go for yourself, go for yourself, is that, yes, it will give you a certain kind of happiness, like cocaine will. It's the same sort of thing. It'll give you a buzz, that buzz feeling. But actually, it won't help you necessarily feel safe or connected or have a sense of meaning. We know that people who spend a lot of their time just wanting to make uh, money, underneath, they can have a sense of uh, meaningless. But what's the point, you know? What's the point of life? What's the point of it all? So it, it's interesting um, that making money is okay, but actually genuine happiness and fun, the ability to have fun, um, is usually through your relationships with other people. Absolutely. And I'm now really curious maybe to learn a little bit more about applications of compassion. You know, for example, if we take uh, leadership, right, and we take the corporate world, How would compassionate leadership look like? If a leader says, I want to be a more compassionate leader, I understand everything that you've been sharing with us. I want to make that part of my leadership practice. What would you advise or recommend? Well, firstly, why do you want to do it? Because if they say, well, because I want my organization to just make more money. and that, <laughs> So why do you want to do it? Because it has to be a set of values for you so leadership then means that I have to take an interest in the well-being of the people I'm leading, okay? Because they're not there just to be exploited and for me to push them as hard as I can so then do their jobs and threaten them with the sack and all that stuff and drive their wages down. Compassionate leadership means that I will help them flourish in the best way that I can, but obviously in tune with the strategic needs of the organization. So, you know, I'm not going to pay them thousands of pounds and then go bankrupt next week. That's no point there, is it really? So, but 
the understanding that when people feel cared about and they have managers who who, who, who do care about them, um, they will become much more loyal to your organization. They'll be much more creative, much more supportive. Um, give you an example. Um, two firms, right? One firm, um, um, the, uh, one of the employees was supposed to do a project and then his father died and he kind of had a bit of a setback and uh, wasn't able to finish the project. And uh, two weeks later, he managed to get into work and the boss said, um, you, you, you took time off to, for your death of your father, but we can't afford that in this company. If you do that again, then I will fire you. Whereas in the other company, they said, I'm so sorry to hear about the death of your father. And of course, you had to take some time off. It's a very difficult time. We've managed to you know, support your department while you've been off. And when you feel ready, come back and we'll support you. And that person went on to make the company a lot of money. So, you know, it's a, it's a story. It's not saying it's a true story, but it's an example of a story that um, you know, uh, compassionate managers really are very interested in how to bring out the best in their workforce. You know, this is your job. What, how are you doing it? What would you like? What do you need from us to do it? And when I worked in the NHS, I'll give you an example of this, in the National Health Service in England, about 10, 20 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, there's this big thing about the NHS wasn't compassionate. And so we had all these directives from government that, you know, you have to be more compassionate and if nursing staff are shown not to be compassionate and they can lose their wages and so on. It's absolutely ridiculous. Actually, if you go onto any ward, any hospital ward, and say to the staff, how would you make this ward the most compassionate ward you could make it so that you'd be very happy for your mum or your dad or your husband and wife to come in here, what would you do? They will come up with lots of ideas, okay? So the key thing in organization is that managers should facilitate bottom-up solutions, not top-down ones, okay? Now, bottom-up solutions obviously have to also be in tune with the strategic needs of the organization because there's no point in going bankrupt, right? But bottom-up solutions, and Google found this. They actually did a big study, and they found that one of the best predictors of good work practices were when staff felt they were involved and informed of decisions and they could make contributions to decision making okay so that that's a very important aspect that managers are not just trying to make you do things but they are interested in you they're interested in your contribution they're interested in your ideas if you're struggling with stress or whatever they will try to do what they can to support and help you good organizations will have support for people with mental health difficulties and so on and so on. I love how, how simple it is when you describe it. It's really just a caring for people and their needs, but then the environment for the bottom-up creation, the, the environment that you create, right? It's not rocket science the way you describe it. It's it's That's actually right. fairly simple. Um, there is probably one caveat around it that currently with COVID aftermath and you know the war in Ukraine, supply chain issues that many companies face, there is a lot of pressure on on leaders and organizations these days. So, you know, what advice would you give to them when maybe some of them feel overwhelmed themselves, you know, or overburdened with some of the ongoing VUCA yeah, challenge? Yeah, great. Uh, that's a very, very important point you make because you can't change that, right? You have to manage it. You can't change it. You can't change the food shortages. You can't suddenly stop the war in Ukraine. You can't do that. So you're going to manage it. So the question is then, what is the best way to manage it? One of the best ways of managing it is as much as possible, 
share your dilemmas with your staff. Don't impose solutions. You know, treat your staff like fellow human beings that also recognize the stresses and say to them, look, we've got these supply chains here and we're really struggling. And, you know, what, what can we do? And there's some really good examples of this where that's happened. And some, in some cases, workers have said, well, look, I, I'm, you know, I'm nearing retirement, so I can take early retirement or I can do a job share, you know, so you don't need to sh- get rid of too many people. Or I can work overtime, I can do extra hours, really, if you need me to do it. So whatever the needs are, if you share the stresses, people will come because they want to support you. They want to support the organization because they're loyal to it. But if you're a manager that's an imposer and a bully, they will say, that's your problem, it's not mine. Yeah, but I love what you're saying, like sharing the burden of leadership and you can be cared for just like you you care about others. You can co-solve problems. You don't need to do it alone. Yeah, that's that's important because caring leadership is not rescuers stepping in trying to solve everybody's problems. Caring is facilitating other people to solve their problems, helping them take responsibility and giving the means for them to think through and come up with solutions and to value those solutions. Okay, that's key, really. Um, So within organizations, when people feel valued, that they make valued contributions, this is really profoundly important. I know a couple of people who work for a particular industry, I won't say which, but um, quite a large industry that produces um, cars and things. And a number of them say, well, this organization doesn't care for me particularly. I can see lots of ways that the organization, this factory would work much better but I'm not going to tell them, why should I? <laughs> you don't want that. You do not want that. The people just coming to work and doing their job, keeping their head down. Um, I mean, it's okay, but, you know, we live in a different era now where people need to feel informed. They need to feel part of it. They need to feel their contributions matter. That's And leadership is part of what facilitates that process. And that leads beautifully to another very important question. You know, you mentioned bullying behavior, obviously, you know, micromanaging behavior. My my son in school, they had a violence incident just this week with a, with a knife uh, involved in all of that. And that's, you know, we're talking 13-year-olds. How does that happen? Why do people become bullies momentarily or micromanagers or, you know, where does that dark side come from? What fuels that? What creates that? Well, I think the first thing, because you and I have talked about this, and some people find this, that we are potentially the most compassionate species in the world that have ever existed. I mean, you know, there's no other species that could have developed a vaccine for um, COVID, for example, or have the medical practices or the social or the teaching or the educational or police. So all of those things are fantastic. Unfortunately, we are in a species of extremes. We are also the nastiest, most vicious uh, cruel and sadistic species that have ever existed. I mean, if you look back over history, you think of our wars, you know, our tortures, our crucifixions, the incredible ways that we've chosen to kill people, burning them, and so on and so on. And of course, some of the horrible things that are going on in Ukraine and Syria, and today there are still thousands of people right at this moment being tortured in the most hideous ways. So we have to come to terms with the fact that, yes, yes, we we must not be naive about humanity. 
Humans also have a terrible dark side and they can be truly vicious, okay? So then the question is, so what, what is it that keeps the dark side in check? Because, of course, a lot of, uh, in primate societies, it is basically the most aggressive, gets the biggest power. Well, mostly it's through cooperation, caring, and sharing. That's what keeps aggression in check, mostly. But if that starts to falter and people feel they're not part of it or they're vulnerable to it or they come from um, hostile backgrounds or they're under a lot of, Know, abusive backgrounds and so on, then then that's where the bullying begins. And usually, as you know, bullies are really quite frightened underneath. They feel inferior. They feel they have to impose their will. You see, if you think about it like this, Joe, for most dominant hierarchies, the dominant, you, uh, the male, but so uh, the females will do it in the female line as well, that when they dominate, they need to see that the subordinate is frightened of them because the subordinate will submit, lay on their, you know, put their head down and crouch and show themselves to go smaller. The whole point of a dominant threat is to make the subordinate frightened. Now, the fact that we don't do that so much is great, but those tendencies to frighten other people in order to feel safe yourself and to feel give you a sense of power, unfortunately, it's still in us as a potential. And unfortunately, some people, um, they only feel safe if they can frighten you. They can only feel safe if they can threaten you. You know, we've been doing a lot of work in the prisons, and the prisons are full of people who don't feel safe. You know, they don't trust. They never learn to trust because they've been abused or whatever it is. They will feel safe if they can threaten you, and they know that you're frightened of them. Then they feel safe. And that's a very tragic way of being. Um, I mean, you look at Putin, for example, look at his background. I mean, he was a small guy who was bullied a lot. It's classic, isn't it, really? So the need to frighten, um, the need to bully, the need to feel powerful, the need to see somebody else in pain, that's a dark side of humanity, but unfortunately it does break through from time to time. So you're really saying as humans we have these two fundamental for survival strategies, there is the share and care, the compassionate road, but there is also the dominating and frightening. And what you're saying is people who often grew up in environments that were not share and care type environments will resort to, because they're frightened themselves, they will resort more to domination strategies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, generally speaking, you, you go for the more advanced strategy. The more advanced strategy is care and share. That's the one that's the best one for you because you have more allies, you're going to share more, you've got lower, more protection for the future. So if something goes wrong for you, somebody will come and help you. But if that strategy doesn't work, the default, the fallback, is a self-focused, I, I, this is a threatening world, and the only way that I can deal with a threatening world is I have to be stronger, more powerful, and more frightening than anybody else. Um, yeah. You know. yeah, and that, that leads me to want one more question which i think is crucially important all of that obviously is based on experiences people make and a lot of those experiences are early experiences right uh, in childhood in schools and families and so i'm curious you know you your team is also working with schools in that context what can be done to create more sharing and caring environments and maybe to work with teachers with with students already you know to, to grow the seeds more in a compassionate direction well, it's a wonderful question. Of course, you're doing some fantastic work in that area yourself, Joe. Um, I think we've got, we're just beginning to think through what we mean by education. All right. 
So education really has been about educating people with the technical knowledges to engage in the world. Okay, so they know about mathematics, they know they can English and history and blah, blah, blah. It's knowledge-based, right, all of that stuff. Whereas what we're now beginning to realize is that we also have to teach children and train children, not just in PT. PT is good for your body. But we have to train children to help them to understand the mind. You know, you don't do psychology in England until you, you know, into the 1617. Why don't we teach children how their minds work, what their emotions are, why it's important to be friends with people, not enemies with people. How do we teach them how to be empathic and understanding and mindful? Well, mindfulness and some of the work you're doing, compassion training, is gradually coming into schools because we're now appreciating that probably the most uh, potentially wonderful but also the most dangerous thing in the universe is the human brain. And that's the one thing we have not been helping our children understand. And yet it is the most fundamental because, uh, uh, you know, it's all very well learning physics so you can build nuclear weapons. But, you know, if you if you have a brain like some of our leaders, it's very dangerous. So um, physics is great and chemistry is great and all that. It's wonderful. But all of those technologies, all of that science is used by humans for good or for bad. So you've got to make sure that humans know how to take responsibility for using knowledge wisely and courageously, compassionately, because otherwise you've got what you've got at the moment where we spend huge resources on armaments and developing new weapons. And, you know, we've got artificial intelligence coming where we're going to have uh, armies of robots. I mean, we, it would, we're mad, you know, unless we start to really understand that um, the human brain is the most wonderful but also potentially the most dangerous because what we're, some of our inventions that right now uh, are, they don't look great for the future it's such a powerful statement uh, i realized when i grew up in school i was done with school that i learned so much about the outside world and nothing about the inside world right and that's that's basically what you're saying we need to change that we need to educate kids already to learn about themselves their mind and, uh, and I'm curious, you know, maybe a follow-up question. Um, I see it a lot with my kids. I have three kids in school and, you know, this, do I belong? Am I part of a group or not? Which changes all the time, you know, and, or am I being bullied? Do I need to take care of myself? That's a constant theme in, in schools. It doesn't seem to be such a high awareness theme for teachers. They, they seem to be focused more on the academic side as a result of their training. And what would you advise for teachers? How could they respond or how could they deal with this? It's, you know, it's even worse now since COVID and kids, you know, having experienced social distancing, it's not a given that you just have a compassionate environment in a class, for example. How would you as a teacher go about creating that? Well, I think it's a great question because the other thing is helping children to think these things through, giving them a, giving them a forum for, uh, so sharing the issues with the children, right? Sharing issues about how they feel they would like to be given the COVID, you know, how would they like to come back together? You know, let's be clear, you know, you, COVID isn't, it can't just be the elephant in the room when children are coming back into school. 
we need to talk about that with them. What does that mean? What is it? What has it been like not being able to meet with your friends? What is it like? How are you going to do that now? What are you worried about now? Are you anxious now about meeting with your friends? And what's the most important thing? And maybe maybe that shows us how important friendship is. <clears throat> so there's many things, but if you just try and pretend it hasn't really happened, then we've got to get back into learning geography and physics and maths as quickly as we can because we've all got behind. If you do that, you see you you're not really helping children adjust to the reality that COVID has been a horrible experience for kids, uh, terrible. Um, and it really has disrupted a lot of their social connections, sense of social confidence. There's increasing rates of depression and anxiety amongst children as a direct result of social disconnection. <coughs> Excuse me. So, you know, we have to address it. You know, can't just ignore it. So what you're saying is not just theoretical education, but working with dynamics that are going on, right? Addressing issues that are happening with the kids, yeah. um, talking yeah. about it um, when it happens. Um, yeah. So we've got to give teachers the opportunities, <coughs> excuse me, the time, but also the, the skills to be able to um, know how to allow, facilitate children discussing the topic. Now, some teachers are brilliant at it, you know, but some may need a little bit of help. How do you help children talk about their feelings? How do you help six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, teenagers talk about their feelings? How do you how do you do that? So there's a, you know there are ways in which we can help teachers do that. Uh, but the problem is also the system because if the system is only rewarding you because of your how many exams your children pass and they're not really that interested in how good you are at socializing your children into moral values, that's the problem. We don't reward schools enough for training in moral and compassionate values. If schools were to get rated in the degree to which they train in moral and compassionate values, you would see changes. Now, that sounds a little bit top down, but the point about it, once you do that, then the school has to make uh, and has to be allowed to make and has to be facilitated in making time, time and opportunities for moral and compassionate education, you know, teaching children mindfulness skills and empath, empathy skills and so on. They would have to, they'd have to do that. This is an amazing talk because we can see how many different areas we can touch based on your groundbreaking work. We, we talked about uh, prisons, we talked about leadership, uh, we talked about schools. So obviously a lot of different avenues to take. Um, you know, you mentioned initially There's quite a few people around who are quite self-critical and harsh on themselves, often people who might not have had the nurturing environment that they should have deserved when they were growing up. Can these people still be compassionate for others or is self-compassion a prerequisite to be compassionate towards others? Oh, I love that question. Uh, yes. I mean, look, let's be honest about this. I mean, we've got this idea. I mean, it's coming on the internet. I don't know where it's come from, but, you know, you can't be compassionate to others until you're compassionate to yourself. It's complete nuts and nonsense. Don't believe a word of it. Um, I've worked with many depressed people who have been very perfectionistic and self-critical, and they've been absolutely lovely. I've, I used to work with an organization called the Medical Defense Union, uh, which is for stressed doctors, medical doctors. And a lot of them were stressed because they were very perfectionistic, could be very self-critical, could worry about if they'd made the right decisions and blah, 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 and should they do this? <clears throat> But they'd laid down their lives for you, and many did, of course, during COVID. 
uh, you know, and uh, sometimes they could come off of a ward and they'd say, oh, I didn't do that. Maybe I should have. Why didn't I put the ventilator? It wasn't, did I do that right? Maybe I didn't. Do, oh, my goodness. Maybe, maybe they can get caught up in all that stuff. But, I mean, you know, the idea that this, it's just silly, silly ideas. This is really. So people can be very, very um, um, caring of others, even if they're critical of themselves, right? Equally, some people can be very compassionate to themselves and don't give a damn about anybody else. You know, narcissists, for example, <laughs> they're very caring of themselves, but they don't care about anybody else. So they're different systems, okay? They're different systems. Now, of course, if you're severely depressed, it's very going to be difficult to care for anybody, isn't it, really? But it's the same when, when you're doing with, um, suppose you're working with depressed mums, for example, and they've lost their feelings for their children because they're inwardly dead. You know, they lost their emotions, so they can't feel anything for anybody, really. And, of course, then they feel depressed about that because they, they want to feel love for their children and so forth. But if you can help them recognize that actually um, that doesn't mean to say they cannot act caringly. And it also to highlight the fact that, you know, what you're doing for your children, like trying to keep their clothes clean, trying to feed them and stuff like that, that is amazing because you feel so bad and so awful and because you don't have feelings, but you're still trying to do it. That's that's a real measure of that's a real measure of compassion. I will do this for my children, even though I don't feel I want to. That that's real compassion. Whereas otherwise you say otherwise people say I can't I'm not compassionate because I don't feel the love. Well, no, it's all in actions, isn't it? It's, what, it's the actions doing things because they're impo those are important values to you, even if you don't always feel them. So it's a great question, but um, <clears throat> yeah, but you can certainly be very compassionate to others and not to yourself, and you can be very compassionate to yourself and not to others. <laughs> I love your answer. It's also a very optimistic and generous one, right? That uh, it's not necessary to beat yourself up. And some of us have had better environments or worse, it's more of a matter of choice. I mean, that doesn't mean we shouldn't help people develop more compassion towards themselves if they don't have it. Obviously, you mentioned that initially, but it never should stop anyone right, from, from being compassionate towards others. And, and, and the two are really oh, independent absolutely. dimensions. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and then people say, well, maybe I'm only being compassionate because I want people to like me. And you say, well, okay, then that's fine. Yeah, it's better than that. <laughs> as long as you're compassionate, right? <laughs> yes. You know. Love it. So it's better, it. it's, you know, so the point about it is we do things for many different reasons. There's not one reason, you know. I do things, and of course I hope people will like me. That has to be one of the reasons. I hope people are not going to hate me for it. I hope they like me for it. So, of course, that's the case. You don't worry about that. The point about it is is recognizing that you'll be compassionate for lots of different reasons, okay? Sometimes those reasons are because you feel for this person, but sometimes because, well, you don't really like them, but it's a moral value. You, you, you don't want to see them hurt, you know? It's, it's more of a moral value rather than a feeling value. So, you know, we, we, are, we are compassionate for many different reasons. And just allow yourself to have different reasons. And one more thing to finish on for your colleagues, look, if you want to be self-critical, just allow yourself to spend a little bit of time just actively listening to your critic. Invite your critic to actively speak to you, okay, and listen to what it says, okay? Try as best you can to have the courage to say, okay, critic, speak to me, and listen to what it says, and whether it says things like, you're an idiot, you're a failure, you're stupid. Listen to the way it speaks to you, right? Re really, because when people begin to really pay attention to the critic and listen to it, they find that the critic is very vicious. 
So then the next thing to do is think, oh, that's okay. Then I can see that. Now, but I don't want to be a vicious person to myself at all. So why, what's going on here? And then look behind your critic. What is your critic frightened of? And nine times out of 10, you'll find that actually underneath it all, you're frightened of rejection. You're frightened of being seen as not good enough or being marginalized or pushed away or not wanted or looked down on. And so your compassion always goes to that part of you, the part of you that's struggling, the part of you that's frightened, because the critic usually is a response to being frightened. That's usually, and you, and you, you start attacking yourself because nobody's going to love me unless I lose weight. Nobody's going to love me. So, you, but what's the the issue is the fear that people won't love you. So always bring your compassion to that part, the fear that sits behind your criticism, because your criticism can be pretty vicious. Absolutely. This is a, a beautiful lead into our last question. Obviously, this podcast is called Dropping Your Armor. And it builds a lot on what you said that we tend to put up armors because we feel unsafe. We feel we need to protect ourselves from others, right? You mentioned the critics and all of that. There is the, maybe the weak part inside of us that doesn't allow itself to come out. Um, and the, so the final question is, you know, a very personal one. When, when you drop your armor, when you're in complete feeling of safeness, what do you do? Like the, 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 just complete the sentence. When I drop my armor, I... Oh, I see. When I'm feeling sick, because I was just saying to you off air, wasn't I? That uh, I like. I, I just got a t-shirt. I don't have any arm. Um, so, when you feel completely safe with somebody, it means the kinds of things you can talk to them about your intimate things, your intimate worries. You can be foolish. You know, I can say to my wife, "I woke up this morning, got had a real anxiety. I don't know why I was anxious. Just really anxious. Probably had too much vodka last night." So you can have these kind of conversations. Um, so the first thing then is that when you feel safe, you actually have more trust. When you have more trust, you become more open to an, to other people, and that's a, an amazing thing. And you let them see your dark side. You know, you, you let them see the side of you that's not maybe so lovable. The other thing is to do things which are joyful to you, like maybe playing guitars or taking time out, going on holiday spending time with friends but choosing to do things that do them purely for the pleasure of doing them not because they achieve anything but the pleasure so those two things you know when you feel safe you become more open to others you have a deeper levels of connection but and that's a mutual thing because that they're, they're doing that with you as well and also you begin to create um joyfulness in your life and doing things that are meaningful to you like you know in my case playing guitar maybe but um yeah yeah and Try where you can to have a sense of playfulness in your relationships with other people. You know, practice smiling and being friendly. You have a very natural friendliness, Joe, so you, you don't need to practice, but some of us do maybe. But, uh, and I love the playfulness piece. We're bringing that to a lot of the groups we work with, uh, and they love it. We bring very stupid things, doing a scavenger hunt together or stuff like that, and it's Oh, it's wonderful. so wonderful yeah, these wonderful. days because things tend to be quite heavy and when you can bring some joy and some fun, some lightness yeah, yeah, to the yeah. room, it makes all the difference in the world. And helping people realize this is just not psychologically. Things are happening in your brain when you do that. Things are happening in your body when you do that. These are very powerful tonics. They're like vitamins for the brain, you know. And if you do it on a regular basis, you will feel better. Not just because it's, you know, it's... It's kind of nice to do, but it's physiologically very powerful to do, bodily very powerful to do. 
Thank you so much, Paul. We are at time and I could uh, continue to ask you questions for another three hours, but obviously you're also on a schedule. I so appreciate uh, you spending the time with us here, sharing so much wisdom, but also inspiration and hope with, with people. So thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll talk again. It's a great joy, Joe, and you're doing wonderful work.